Welcome everyone, I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana and we're here for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. Today is going to be a fascinating discussion. Today's guest is Clay Walker. So Clay, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. So we'll hop in, Clay. Um, I'm not going to give a lot of bio on you. Uh, just your expertise will come uh, clear super fast uh, through this conversation. But since 2011, you've been the director of juvenile services for Caddo Parish. That's right. Yeah. I want to spend today talking about the issue of juvenile crime in our community, a multifaceted, complex problem that we've been struggling with for decades. Let's start with this quote of yours. It costs 10 times more to lock them up than it does to prevent it. Louisiana can't afford it. We're going to continue to see brain drain and companies leave and nobody moving in. Talk to me about the economics of incarceration versus prevention. Well, that is a complex question. Um, so the bottom line is that um, there, there's two parts of it. One is really the idea that incarceration these days is not working very well in terms of rehabilitation. It's not actually doing the job we're, we're looking for it to do in terms of rehabilitation. Um, and so that kind of cycle that never seems to end of people getting out and then reoffending and getting out and reoffending um, doesn't seem to work. Um, and it is tremendously expensive. It's, it's, our, our juvenile detention center is roughly $400 a day per bed. Um, and so for what is this, about $29 a day, our probation services um, are more effective. And so that's part of why I said that. But, but, the, but the real issue is, um, like anything in public health, if we can address it in prevention, um, to address you know, diabetes in, in prevention, a healthier diet, whatever it is, um, is less expensive and more effective than waiting until after the diabetes comes on and now you have to have you know, treatment of your kidneys or whatever else. It's the same in terms of um, prevention with kids. And this is all the way back, I think it was Frederick Douglass that says it's, it's easier to, to build a healthy man you know, than, to, than to rebuild a broken man. Um, and so, so many of the kids we're dealing with have the symptoms, early symptoms, truancy, behavior problems in school, chronic behavior, you know, five, six, seven, maybe till nine or ten. Um, and it would be so much better as, as a community if we addressed it at that time um, rather than waiting till they're too old and coming 15, 16. I run the juvenile detention center, and so those kids come to detention at 15 and 16, and it's it's almost too late. Um, so, prevention for Shreveport, I think, is the the step we have to take. Um, we have good law enforcement in the area; they do a lot of good work to get, you know, quote unquote, the bad guys, um, and we'll spend energy and money on that. Uh, it doesn't solve the problem, and we'll continue to have to do that if we don't get to a prevention model. So let's move on to another quote of yours, which is, for my adult life, 
Caddo Parish has led the world in incarceration per capita, and yet here we are. Yeah, so um, that's unfortunately true again. I believe Louisiana, for a brief period of time, Oklahoma passed us in 2018. I think we've taken back the top spot, Louisiana, in incarceration. And so my point of that was um, if Caddo continues to lead the world to be in the top three of incarceration per capita, we should in theory be the safest place in the world if incarceration solved the problem. Um, and so that was my point was um, incarceration, and I want to be clear, the, the youth um, and certainly the adults, and I'll speak to, to juvenile crime, youth that are, that are involved in violence, um, that are using guns, that are committing those kinds of crimes, that's what prison is for. Um, it needs to be rehabilitative, it needs to be better, uh, but that's what prison is for. I'm not talking about not incarcerating kids that need to be. Um, but the significant majority of kids um, that are not made better by incarceration will be better off with prevention, will be better off with treatment. Um, we should put more money into that than we do into incarceration. Uh, because like I say, I don't, I don't think it works. Part of that is um, right now, frankly, we're not funding as a state um, the Office of Juvenile Justice like we should. We're not funding the Department of Children and Family Services like we should. That's child protection, and that's the state agency that runs juvenile prisons. Um, they need better appropriate funding to properly staff so that the places are safe and can be rehabilitative. And right now, frankly, they're neither. Um, so the system we're, we're, we're underfunding is not working. Um, but also, generally speaking, part of the problem is that children don't respond well um, to that kind of treatment, to incarceration as a, as a, as a um, way to fix things. You may be able to tell an adult, if you want to avoid prison, don't drink and drive. I don't want to go to prison. So my wife and I, you know, we'll Uber. We do whatever, we, we will make steps to, to avoid that. Um, at, at 14, kids aren't thinking about consequences, that sort of thing. They're not thinking in that way. And so children don't learn from incarceration the same way. It's actually quite the opposite. Um, detention has a negative effect on kids. Kids that go into detention, if you're trying to teach them a lesson, don't, you know, skip school and you need to go to school. And then if we put them in jail for that, while they're in detention, they're meeting 10 other kids that are doing negative things and they'll literally get out and be on a worse path than when we put them in. So for a lot of reasons, um, incarceration is not working when it comes to juvenile crime and it costs too much money. You have said that we're not getting upstream at solving the problem. I came across another quote of yours, which is, you're dealing with poverty, parenting issues, and with reasons kids are susceptible to gangs, mm -hmm. and this is my own ad, I, I would probably add trauma to the above quote. What can we do better for children to help them take a healthier path rather than a gang path? So, I mean, what, what we're talking about is kind of recognizing that, um, unfortunately, gangs actually do serve a purpose for a kid. 
So a child growing up in poverty, growing up in a dangerous neighborhood um, that is subject to the violence in that neighborhood until they're protected by being a gang member. That membership is actually getting that kid that protection. Um, and so there's things that the gang can provide for the kid um, that we need to be thinking about. The, um, what, I, what I'm trying to do for, for that kind of kid in terms of prevention, getting upstream of that, um, is providing them with um, places and spaces where they can be safer, um, where they can get the needs met in a healthier way. If the, if the gang is, they're feeling like they belong to something, they're a part of something, they're safe in it, you need to provide that in other healthier ways. Normally, I mean, you know, quote unquote normal childhood sort of thing, kids um, at relatively early ages, my kids both played soccer um, at the Y, they played soccer then with Cabosa. Um, my son plays it in high school, uh, sports, my daughter did theater, um, swimming year round, both kids. All of the same things that are met, you know, feeling like a sense of belonging, um, feeling like they are good at something, they feel like their significance is, is being recognized. Um, that's in, in, in a kid growing up, all of that feels good. What we're dealing with, and this is almost hard to wrap your head around, we're dealing with kids growing up in poverty who have none of that. If it's not in public school, they get none of that. They can't afford any of the fees to, to join the Y Recreational Soccer League. They can't afford any of the fees for any, you know, it, whether or not it's you know piano, dance, art, whatever it is, it costs money to, to go. Um, and then generally speaking, a single mom um, struggling with transportation. So, I mean, we kind of joke about this. I have both, we, you know, we're a two-parent household and we have four grandparents in town. All, all four of our parents are here in Shreveport. Um, and we still struggled with just two kids to get everybody where they need to get and pick them up. We had to rely on grandparents quite a bit. Single mom doesn't have that access and doesn't, so the kid's not gonna get to practices and what have you. Um, so you're now talking about a 9, 10, 11 year old who goes to public school, comes home, has no access to any of that, no coaches as mentors, no positive peers as friends, um, no sense of belonging and all that, that then is unfortunately met by the gang. We need to replace that, we need to figure out a system in, in Shreveport where poor children have access to those recreational whether it be art, dance, music, but not all kids are athletes, whatever it is, but they have to have access to that um, so that they have that safe place and safe space, so they have that mentor, coach, choir director, whoever it is. Um, they need to have that in their lives um, because if they don't, like I say, unfortunately, they will then be vulnerable to gangs and gangs are, are around the country unfortunately meeting those needs. Um, so again, it's back to a prevention piece. Um, trying to get a kid out of a gang. I mean, I left work here this morning to come talk with you, and that's what I'm working on right now, is talking about an intelligence unit within our juvenile court, dealing with gangs, um, working with the school system and trying to communicate about gangs and how you get kids out of gangs. Um, we've had conversations with children in detention here in the last few weeks where kids are literally saying you can't get out 
even if they want it out, they can't get out. That's how they feel. Um, it is so much easier with a seven, eight-year-old to get them onto a team and in these positive areas and spaces um, rather than trying to now deal with a 15-year-old getting out of a gang um, where there's been actual violence. And anyway, it's, it's just prevention is always easier, more effective, costs less. We need to come together as a community and fo focus on that prevention piece. So I read this stat, um, or actually you told me this, only, only 304 children in a parish of 60,000 children came to the, the detention center last year. Of those 304, only 66 were repeat offenders and returned to the detention center after serving their initial time. The number one factor, which we, we, you just addressed some of this, but you may want to expand. The number one factor for the 66 kids that are repeat offenders in detention is that they do not have a single pro-social pro adult in their life. Not a parent, not a grandparent, not an aunt, not an uncle, not a principal, not a teacher, not a coach, not a pastor, not a mentor. Is there anything you want to expand upon with regards to that. Yeah, it's the same notion. Um, looking at it from two different angles, we you can you can talk to folks um, that had tough childhoods, that had struggles, and very often you're going to find they can pinpoint, they can point out to you a coach, a, a pastor, you know, someone, if they had struggles in the home and, and they were having trouble with their parents, you know, another adult that was really a lifeline for them, a teacher. Um, very often it's a teacher. Um, the reverse of that, unfortunately, what, what we did at one point was, was to sit down the probation staff um, and say, can we look at these repeat offenders, look at the kids we're struggling to turn around, um, and find, like, go through their file, go through their history, find that one teacher, find that one adult, and we literally can't. Um, it, again, it's hard to wrap my head around. Um, I grew up with a mom stepmom and a dad um, I mean countless teachers coaches um, friends parents I mean the mentors were, were all over the place um, and the way you know a, a village is built that surrounds a kid if, if my parents teach me not to steal you know not to do bad things and when I go to my friend's house their parents are teaching the same values. I'm with my coach, and the coach is teaching the same values. The teacher is reiterating the same values. That's the best way that for me as a kid to learn those values. Um, these are kids, unfortunately, we're talking about um, poverty, single mom, and let me just touch on that note for a second. I represented kids for 12 years in juvenile court before I became the director. In 12 years, I worked with two biological dads this whole world is single moms, the world I work in. Um, and so single moms um, trying to raise kids, if they have struggles of their own, so the kids that are coming to us, they're repeat offenders, um, it's an unstable household, it's a violent household, there's alcohol and drug use, it's, a, it's not a positive environment. Um, because of that, they struggle in school, they don't have time to do, you know, practice reading, practice homework. Mom is working two jobs, um, so when they get home from school, there's no one there to help them with that. Um, that disconnect from the school, they don't make that connection to a teacher, 
again, it's back to that same cycle of there are no coaches because they can't afford the team. There are no events because you know there's no choir. They don't they can't they don't have the transportation to go regularly. So you literally end up with them, I and it's it is kind of hard to fathom. I mean, I think of the Shreveport I grew up in versus the Shreveport that I'm looking at for these kids. Um, you're 14 years old, and in terms of learning values, um, all the lessons that you learn from your village and your mentors, they've had none of it. And so that they're learning it from a 20-year-old on the street corner. They're learning it from a 19-year-old gang member. The gang members that we're dealing with, the leadership are 30. Most of the kids are dealing with some 20-year-olds that are, that are kind of running at that level. Um, and so that's who's teaching them. And that's the values they're learning. Um, and so it's, um, it's, you know, for the 66, I guess my main point was um, by the time those 66 come to us and we try whatever we try, jail time, punishment, community service, mentoring, you know, um, counseling, therapy, what have you, it's, it's almost too late. I mean, 16-year-olds, generally, if you go to any high school in town and, and talk to parents, 16-year-olds are tough. Um, it's a tough age to work with. They think they know everything they need to know. Hormones are going crazy. Their, their friends are more important than their, their parents at that point. Um, if they haven't learned the values by then, it's harder to teach the values at 16. And so that's my point of that is for the 66. I also think, I mean, to me... Um, part of what I was saying about that for Shreveport, I mean, what I'm trying to look at is the next 20 years um, for reducing crime and trying to put some good prevention plans in place um, to reduce crime in Shreveport. The fact that it's only 304 kids coming to juvenile detention and there's 60,000, there's more churches than there are children that came to juvenile detention. We could put more than one church on every kid. <laughs> to help them. Um, we should be able to wrap our hands around 304 kids. To be clear about that 304, probably about the same number, about 70 kids, unfortunately, are going to juvenile prison. If you commit a gun, you know, gun charge, gun violence, any kind of murder, rape, armed robbery, the very those, those kids are going to juvenile prison. Um, so they leave and don't come back because they're still incarcerated somewhere else. Um, the difference there, whatever that, you know, 180 kids, um, maybe 150, depending on the year, um, don't come back. Uh, the lesson they learned, detention, you know, the police was scary enough, the judge was serious enough, detention was something they didn't want to deal with, they don't come back. Very often, they have enough of a family structure that we help to support, and the kids don't come back. Um, the 66 that come back, um, over and over again, I feel like it's a little too late. So what I want to try to set up is, you know, can we reduce the 304 by more prevention? Um, can we reduce the 66 by more prevention? Um, I do think it's a number that we can wrap our hands around, but I'll also put out one more number that makes me nervous for right now. Um, our next mayor, current chief of police and the police department, our sheriff, the DA's office, I and mean, everybody has to work together on this piece. There are over 5,000 children right now that are significantly truant. So five days is truant under the eyes of the law. Um, I believe there's over 1,500, 1,600 
among 6th to 12th graders that are more than 25 days truant. So five times the legal limit, um, and there's over 1,500. That's 6th to 12th grade is an age group that's potentially getting involved in delinquency and coming to detention. There's over, there's near 1,600, and only 304 are causing the level of crime that we have now. We have to get in front of that truancy number in terms of prevention so they don't come to delinquency. K through five, it's almost 3,600 children that are significantly truant. Um, so over 5,000 kids that are, have got a foot on the wrong path. Um, we've got to get in front of that as a community to be sure that the 304 number doesn't triple. Um, that's what I'm concerned about in terms of um, prevention and, and the, the city and the parish working together to get in front of that. So, And I don't think it's in my notes, but I think you've said to me before I read it, give me the just approximate number of kids living in poverty right now in our community. Um, there's a lot of ways to look at that, but, but basically under the age of five, it's something like 38%. So that's a scary number. Um, I've seen it somewhere kind of in the 30s if you're dealing with all children, 30%. So you're talking about somewhere just below 20,000 children. That's, that's, the, that's the significant problem. Um, I think you're probably, I mean, the work that we do, and there's a bunch of good groups. We have um, the Institute for Childhood Resilience and Laura Alderman, the work they're doing, the Community Foundation, Christy Gustafson, the work she's doing. They are tracking a lot of this and trying to keep an eye on this number of kids and what we're trying to work on. Certainly the school system, Dr. Gorey and Keith Burton and their team, um, the kids they're working with, but I think you're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 children that I'm worried about. That truly there are, there's a working poor, um, and they are managing, this is a generalization, but they're managing to get kids to baseball teams and football teams and track and things. You know, just because you're poor doesn't mean you're headed toward delinquency. Um, what the kids I'm concerned about, around 10,000 kids, um, that are, it's generational poverty, and it's a poverty that is so significant that the families are not able to get the kids to these events. I mean, I need kids to be in um, everything from, you know, sports, art, dance, church, whatever we can get them to for that kind of uh, village to be built around them. You said when we're dealing with things like truancy, we need the school system, the parish commission, the juvenile court. We need all those bodies together. You're in the process or, or, or maybe already on the path of creating an intergovernmental committee to address juvenile crime. Talk to me about this effort and the important role the committee will serve. Right. I mean, so what I would say is I feel like all of the significant work that I've seen done in, in the 20 plus years that I've been doing this work, um, I can almost pinpoint every single one came from an act of collaboration. Um, when the school system joins together, I think you could really see a significant change. For example, 2013, Dr. Gorey comes on, juvenile justice and the school system started to work together in a way we never have. Um, since Dr. Gorey started, we have reduced school-based arrests by more than 60%. Um, 
And so that, to me, is, is the significance of, of collaboration. Um, another example, I mean, what I was talking about before, the truancy numbers. If we're going to address the problems of truancy, um, that is, truancy system affects obviously the school system. We're talking about kids not being in school. It affects the police department because truant kids often with idle hands are on the streets doing you know, negative things. So the police department is going to then be involved. And then the parish commission, I don't know if everybody recognizes, um, the parish commission is the body that oversees juvenile court and juvenile justice. Um, and so the parish commission obviously is involved with truancy because that's the work that we do. Um, those three bodies, the, the, the city council and the mayor's office overseeing, working with the police department, parish commission overseeing juvenile and the school system with the kids, um, in order to solve the problem of truancy, you have to get um, joint funding and you have to get the worker bees within those agencies working together. Um, the significance of this joint committee, um, and, and it's we have the committee's met now, I believe, four times, um, and they're doing good work. Uh, I, I am, I'm, I'm happy about Shreveport and, and Caddo in the sense that um, it's small enough and it's enough of a community that we all know each other, we can all work together, we can sit at a table and get everybody in one room. Um, the significance of the elected officials is, and, and, and I think, I'm hoping they're beginning to see this, um, it's not, I can't as a, you know, I run juvenile court. I'm, I'm an employee of the parish commission. I struggle and I can't, I can't tell a school board, you know, a school board personnel, somebody from a school, what to do. I can't tell someone within the police department or the city what to do or SPAR or the city parks what to do. Um, we need a joint committee if we're going to be addressing truancy. I need, you know, the, there's two school board members on this committee and we need them to be giving the directives to the school personnel. Um, there's two parish commissioners. They're giving us the directors with the directives within um, juvenile court. We need that leadership to be giving those directives. Um, and then also just in terms of the, um, the decisions that have to be made. I mean, they are the decision makers. Uh, the parish commission, by the charter, they are the policy makers. So they decide what we're going to do about truancy. I then carry out those, those directives. Um, and of course, to get things done on that scale, it does need funding. You need money. Um, we just went through a couple of meetings, just as an example again. Um, in 2016, truancy was nearly under control. We had it, we were down to something under 100, I think, petitions that were being filed by the DA's office dealing with truancy. Um, things are going pretty well. Um, when you get into COVID in 2019-2020, um, truancy then just blows back up, and so now we're looking at over 5,000 kids that are truant. Um, in order to deal with that wave, and I'm, what I'm hoping is, can we really put some resources on it for two to three years and get it back under control like we did in 2016? Um, if we can do that, it's, it's going to, or in order to do that, it's going to take money. The parish commission just set aside an additional 150,000 to bring in more truancy officers. Um, that's the kind of work we need. We need to get everybody in one room, talk about the details of truancy and what we need, 
and the decision makers on the money have to be in the room and say, we can put $150,000 toward that. I can't do that. I can tell them everything about truancy and I can tell them what will work. I can tell them how we were successful in 2016. All the people, volunteers for youth justice, the people within child welfare and attendance at the school system, all of that work we can we can do, but we need the funding to do it. So the commissioners have got to be there to do that. Um, this committee, this joint uh, committee on, on community safety has two school board members, two city council members, um, two school board members. It has the DA, the sheriff, the chief of police, the mayor's office, um, DCFS, child protection is there. Um, it, it, it's essentially all of the decision makers to deal with problems involving juvenile crime. Are you able? Are you able to <clears throat> divulge or disclose the exact composition? Who 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 these representatives are? Yeah, I don't think it's. I mean, I don't think it's. It's not intended to be a secret. They're what they're trying to do is to work without too much um, attention or limelight because that's not the point. The point is to get the work done. But yes, just as an example, I mean, um, Jim Talaferro and Stormy Gage Watts are the two parish uh, commissioners. Uh, Stormy Gage Watts is the um, chair of the juvenile subcommittee. She has been for three or four years, very knowledgeable about this, about this work, very attentive. Jim Talaferro is also on the juvenile justice subcommittee. He has a lifetime of, of law enforcement experience, um, so he brings knowledge to it. When we're talking about truancy or delinquency and the, and the, um, and the problems we're having, I mean, let me, let me back up and just say, this joint committee is working on crime suppression when we're dealing with gang violence and shootings and crimes, you know, it, that's too late. That needs law enforcement and that needs jail. That needs good rehabilitation in jail and hopefully it can be effective. Um, it needs crime intervention. Um, kids that have not yet done anything truly violent, they're not yet going to jail, but they're on the wrong path and we need to intervene um, and get them resources and get them into programs um, like truancy would be intervention. And then crime prevention is the, is the final piece, which is really getting into um, schools and younger ages to try to get them, as I was saying before, you know, building a village around kids that don't have one um, to try to prevent. That's what this committee's working on, is all of that. Um, so if we're gonna be dealing with truancy, crime intervention, um, we need those decision makers. The school board members, um, Mary Trammell, um, Christine Tharp. And so what's fantastic about this, I mean, Mary Trammell has been a, a, a working friend, a friend to juvenile justice um, for all the 12 years that I've been doing it. For the whole time I've been there, she's been a teen. Um, I mean, I can think of several school board members. Dottie Bell is another um, amazing partnerships with juvenile justice and the work they do. So they bring knowledge about you know, the school system, about truancy, about what they can do to get in front of it, um, their child welfare and attendance system. Um, but also just, I mean, we, we to some extent, um, members were chosen that have this history, that know um, juvenile justice, uh, that know the judges in juvenile court, that know the police and the sheriff. Um, we all need to be able to sit, the, sit at the table we're trying to solve complex things. We're not trying to point fingers and blame any other system. Um, we're trying to come up with money, and money's short all around. Um, but 
you know, I think it's a good group that recognizes we've got to address crime on all three levels, intervention, suppression, and prevention, um, to try to make Shreveport a safer place, to make Caddo a safer place. And in terms of the city council representatives? Um, Dr. Alan Jackson and Grayson Butcher um, okay. are the two right now. Um, and so it's it's a relatively new, I and mean, this, this started um, earlier June, July of this year. It's relatively new. Um, they've been meeting um, four to six weeks. Um, they give the worker bees some instructions to take care of in between. We've got subcommittees. We've had meetings on truancy. We're forming a, um, there's going to be a one-stop shop, if you will, for juvenile justice. It's called the Harbor, with the idea of kind of a safe harbor in mind. But a it's going to be right down the street, is that right? right? It is. It's going to be right down the street on Knight Street. This is Building 6. Um, for the old special ed building for the school system. And when's um, this open? When's the harbor? At the end of September, okay. so it, about a month. Um, but a lot of significant work. I mean, let me say the school board is generous, generously donating a building. This is 55,000 square feet. Um, it's meant to have all programs that serve youth under one roof. What I was talking about before, you're dealing with a single mom with transportation issues, living in poverty. So she has three or four kids. She has a list of things to do that's 18 items long. I'm hoping that she can knock out six of them under one roof. She needs to see this as a resource, not a punishment. But she's going to a facility where she there's going to be, you know, SNAP benefits can be dealt with. Um, there's tutoring for the kid if there's truancy issues, child support issues, um, domestic violence issues mental health issues, it's all under one roof. The idea also is the, the business model of this, um, the mental health agencies, just as an example. Um, the families need to go to a mental health as part of maybe under court, if the child is court involved and they're sent there, and they need to go um, do sessions with a, with a counselor. It's very difficult for the mom to deal with transportation for that, the, you know the planning of that if it's under one roof they can go and that makes it easy for the family the counseling agency that's housed there is paying rent um, that rent the rent for all 55,000 square feet pays for the program itself so it's tax-free to the taxpayer um, we're not trying to raise taxes or cost any money but we need to get under one roof to help the families to make it more functional but we are trying to do it in a way that doesn't cost additional money for taxpayers um, so that opens in September. That's one of the subcommittees of this um, Joint Committee on Community Safety. Um, so that group has met several times. Um, the mayor, uh, the parish commission, um, Dr. Woody Wilson, my boss, um, they're all in part of the planning of this. Um, we form these subcommittees, um, and as I say, they oversee um, they give us directives to take care of in the four to six weeks between meetings, and we come back and report on how things are doing, and um, and then we take the next steps. I mean, get more funding if we need it, um, or whatever other collaboration um, we need to do. So I've read that Washington State and some other states around the country are addressing the issue of crime in far different ways than we do. Can you talk to me about one or two 
of these other models and their level of success? Yeah, so just as an example, and this is across the board what we're trying to do in juvenile court. Um, find programs around the country that have been have, you know, dealing with the same problems. Um, find two or three of them and reach out to those folks, you know, get their policy manuals, get the instructions, um, research the programs to make sure they're working well. I mean, try to figure out what it's going to cost the community, that sort of thing. Um, but looking for evidence-based programs that are already working. I don't, I don't want to try to reinvent the wheel if somebody's been doing this well in other communities. Um, to that end, for example, um, when we saw the uptick, um, this is a national problem, an uptick in, in gun, gun and gang violence in the last um, 18 months to two years. It really, it was a problem before the pandemic, it was exacerbated by the pandemic. The kids that were vulnerable to gang membership were 10 times more vulnerable during the pandemic to that gang membership. Um, so that's why we've seen gang numbers uh, increase and, and you know, you can hear the gunshots around town that have increased in the last two years because of that. Um, we then sent a team um, in juvenile court to um, a gang training in Chicago. Um, unfortunately, obviously, Chicago dealing with a lot of gang violence. That is a, um, a part of the country where um, I guess you could say the best and the brightest of law enforcement dealing with gang violence meet annually to talk about and learn from each other. And so we went. Um, we have five members of our team now that are certified in, in, in addressing gang problems. Um, and just as an example, there was a program in Danville, Virginia called Project Imagine. Um, and the short version is um, dealing with gang members and um, using vocational tracks as opposed to education, as opposed to school um, for their path. What we learned, um, again, just by way of example, I mean, if a kid is involved in a gang and they are... Um, they are getting some, one of the things they're getting from that gang membership is money. So selling guns, selling drugs, they are getting um, some money. It's not the same level of money that it was in gangs in the 80s and 90s, but it's still some money. Um, and they're using that money to survive in a household in poverty. And so it's one thing to try to teach the kid values and morals and get them out of the gang. Um, that money is, is, is how they're surviving. And so a big part of the success that Danville, Virginia saw was saying, could we get the kid out of um, the gang by offering them some kind of job training, vocational training, and a, and a, and a, and a, and a job? Um, and to be clear, again, we're not talking about a kid that has committed some kind of gun violence. That's what jail is for. We're talking about kids that we know are potentially involved in gangs, that are claiming gang membership, more on the front end, they're beginning to get involved in it. We're trying to reach out to that kid, create enough of a rapport and a relationship and a trust that we can pull them out of the gang. Um, that in and of itself is not easy. The phrase they used in Danville was a um, trusted messenger. Not everybody can be a trusted messenger, but you find people in the community that these kids trust, and you have to work through that that trusted messenger to bring the message of when you are ready to get out, we'll have an avenue for you to get out, an off-ramp. 
and we'll have potentially, uh, you know, the idea of vocational. So what they did in Danville, just more uh, by way of example, they reached out to their local um, vocational community and said, you know, it looks like it's an 18-month to two-year training to get some sort of vocational certification. That's not going to work. I got a 16-year-old in poverty, in a gang, getting some money from that. You know, what can we do? In Danville, they came up with a 10-day construction certificate. Um, and so when the child is ready, you have to have enough of a rapport and a relationship with the kid to say, you know, were you ready to get out? And the kid is being pretty open and honest about their gang membership. Um, and then you say, you know, we have, a, we have these options. We have a 10-day construction certificate. Um, they take that certification. Um, and then you have to be able to line up a, a construction job. I mean, it's a construction helper job. But it's something where they're getting some money. Um, and can they do that? And then you're monitoring at the same time that they're not still involved with, with gangs and they're not still doing um, that kind of negative um, behavior. So those are the programs. Danville, Virginia, it's a much smaller community, um, but they went from having something like 17 or 18 gang killings a year to zero. They were able to, to really have an impact in a relatively short span by getting a lot of these kids off that path. Um, we work unfortunately every day with kids involved in, in gangs here in Treeport and there are some kids that are too far gone um, that'll be very open with us about their gang activity and, and their intentions um, and those are the ones where we're talking more about crime suppression unfortunately crime that, that's law enforcement and, and jail um, if you're headed down that path but for the kids and it is the majority of kids um, that are not involved at that level where we had could could have this kind of intervention like Danville, Virginia did. Um, can we can we reach out to and we have to our local vocational community? We're having those same conversations about um, are there certifications? Are there tracks we could get vocational tracks we could get kids on to get them out of that life? Um, so again, if you were able to develop that kind of a rapport with a kid develop that trust to get them out and they were actually in a mental space where they wanted out um, it would cost a tenth of the money um, one of the programs in Chicago was talking about it almost would call you could pay and obviously they're not promoting that you do this but it cost the city somewhere in the neighborhood of seven hundred fifty thousand dollars per murder in the loss to the economic development to you know a public defender, a DA, the police, the jail time, the incarceration, the coroner, the work, the, all of it, and then the, the economic loss because a business decides not to come, et cetera, et cetera, is that kind of cost. Um, the actual cost for us of I mean, incarcerating kids in detention or in one of the state facilities, um, we are much better off. It's federal money. So it, it, it's all, I mean, it is taxpayer money, but it's not additional taxes that we'd be looking for here. We can use federal money to pay if this kid will take the vocational training and the job and, and stay out of the gang life. And so it's, it's gonna make a lot more sense money-wise and obviously in terms of reducing crime if we can get even close to what Danville did. Again, Danville was a, is a much smaller community, but if we can get that kind of success to reduce gang violence um, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, I don't know about 100%, but if we can get 
half of that if we can get you know a significant amount. Um, we're going to push for all 100%, but um, that's what we're going to try to do. It's going to take programs like that. Let me wrap up on that notion. The theme, the absolute takeaway message of this gang training, because I went myself, um, was you cannot arrest your way out of this problem. Every city in the country, Miami, L.A., Chicago, New Orleans, New York, every, these are law enforcement of 30 years, hands down to a person, everybody said you cannot arrest your way out of this problem. You've got to create intervention programs, try to reach the kids that are still reachable and get them out. Um, you're not going to, the arresting money-wise, but also the lack of success in rehabilitation guys are in jail still running the gangs, then getting out and continuing it. Um, you can't arrest your way out of the problem. So prevention and intervention is, is where we really need to focus. Um, I am hopeful um, for Shreveport, and I've said this a couple times, and I think we are small enough, and we all know each other. Um, I can call the sheriff. He's approachable. He's We work well together. I can call the chief of police, the mayor, the DA. Um, you know, Will Pryor within the DA's office is, I've been working with Will for 20 plus years in juvenile court. These are easy folks to call, to work with, to collaborate with, to bring, you know, to get to the table. Um, they bring me to the table, I bring them to the table sometimes, and we all come together for different meetings. I think we can do this um, if we can continue to collaborate and work together. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful. So we'll see. I mean, I think, you know, it's election season. We've got to get through the next this election and, and hopefully sustain this committee and continue to work together no matter who's in, in what office. I still think it's a good idea. And I know it's complex, but you hear a lot about the Washington State model. So just uh, hit on that and it just encapsulate that quickly if, if, if you could. Washington, I mean, it's almost, I feel like it's an unfair comparison. I'm, I'm born and raised in Louisiana, and I've learned, you know, over the decades, um, thank God for Mississippi is kind of a mantra sort of thing. You know, it, it's tiresome being 48th and 49th and at best 41st on certain lists. Um, I get the, the bottom line about Washington State, and this is what we really need to do. This is again, if I could kind of boil it down to, to a few solutions. Washington State treats criminal justice and juvenile justice in particular as a public health problem, and we don't, and we should. Um, if you are, if you get cancer, you want to go to the Mayo Clinic or, or you know, Feistwiler or whatever it is that deals with cancer um, because they've run the studies and they know the top medications and the top chemo treatments they know how to, you know, the DNA-focused chemo treatments now, that's all based on studies. Um, they look at, they're looking for evidence-based, 100 people that take a placebo versus 100 people that take the actual medicine and what works. That's how we have to treat criminal justice. It can't just be the judge's gut. I feel like this kid needs to go to detention. We should be tracking what programs work and what, what programs don't. We should be looking to see, if, particularly if we're spending taxpayer money on it, um, if we put them in this after-school program versus that after-school program, you know, how are the grades? What's the reading levels? What's the outcome? That Washington State looks at all of that. They have an entire system for measuring um, outcomes and measuring cost and cost-effectiveness. Um, that is literally kind of a 20-year 
plan if you really want to get to where Washington State is it would take that kind of time um, but I wish I mean I'm hopeful that Caddo could do that we don't even need to wait for Baton Rouge um, there are ways we could do that within our own community to um, to measure the outcomes and use evidence-based programs um, we to some extent I mean, as best we can are doing that within juvenile court um, for example and again I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer by education by by trade um, but I, I meet with doctors and mental health people and um, public health people what I've learned in the last decade um, just as an example trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy is the gold standard of therapy for youth that have suffered serious trauma um, and let me also kind of circle back to you mentioned trauma the 66 kids that were the repeat offenders, that is their collective story. Um, it's horrible. Every girl in that, every girl that comes into juvenile detention, even beyond the 66, has a history of some kind of sexual assault, rape, molestation, some 60% of the boys' molestation history. Children growing up in poverty are under-supervised and therefore at risk for all of those horrible traumas. And that's part of why these kids are acting out and, and having problems. Um, but trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, TFCBT, is the gold standard for treating that. You can literally heal, help heal the brain in the same way that Weiler can help heal cancer. Um, we learned that. And so as a juvenile court, this is Judge Matlock, David Matlock is our chief judge. We learn that and um, he's looking at a terrible cycle of trauma. The, the parents themselves were molested, are now raising kids that are then molested and it's this cycle of, of trauma and abuse. Um, when we look to the community to find TFCBT um, that, that where we could refer our kids and our families um, in juvenile court, there were only three that took Medicaid. Um, and we were swamping them. We were completely overwhelming them with referrals. Um, and so Judge Matlock helped us um, get a grant. We had three or four different sources to raise $70,000 to train 30 people in TFCBT in our community that would take Medicaid. Two years later, we did it again. And so now we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 63 um, community members that are trained in this gold standard of treatment that will work with the families that we have. That's the kind of model you have to have. It's, it's a public health model. You learn that TFCBT is the treatment you need. We're not just sending them to some random program to see if it works. Um, we have to have a system where we can identify the trauma, where we can screen for it, where we can assess for it, where we can refer. You know, Judge Matlock helps us set up a, a pool of 63 people that will take those referrals and then treat those kids. And then you're hoping long-term that it stops the cycle, that Judge Matlock stops seeing the same families coming back to abuse and neglect court. Um, that's the kind of model that Washington State has. It's a, it's a public health model. Um, I would love to see, I know a couple of folks, I mean, certainly Dr. White, Martha White, um, Dr. Denise Freddy, um, there are people in our community in public health that are doing good work. Um, I would love it if they um, took this over. I mean, you know, if they took, if they had a committee that was public health for criminal justice and juvenile justice, I'll come to their meeting. Um, 
we need more of their leadership and their health. Um, help. They're the ones that know this work. Um, but it is a public health problem that we need to address. I mean, when you're dealing with, in the neighborhood of 10,000 kids in poverty, 5,000 kids with significant truancy, 300 kids coming to juvenile detention, we need, you know, the school system and the juvenile justice system need the public health system to teach us, train us, create systems that work for these families. Um, I feel like, I mean, what I don't want to have happen is look back in 20 years on a career where I continued to try to bail out this ship. I don't want to look back and still be doing some of the same work, dealing with kids coming into detention, dealing with the same issues of poverty and, and trauma, and we're just bailing out water, and I'll do my 30 years, and the next person under me comes up and does their 30 years. I want to try to figure out, and this is the analogy of getting upstream, we want to try to figure out through public health, how do we start to, you know, repair the ship so that it stops leaking and we don't have to continue to bail water, um, whatever analogy you want to use. And that's what I, we need to try to figure out um, healing families, reaching kids where they're younger, using models like TFCBT to try to heal those things. Um, community programs, you know, SPAR, Caddo Parks, the Caddo, the uh, school system, um, recreation and sports programs all need to join together. We need to build a village around those 10,000 kids and start to provide for them after school programs, reading programs, safe spaces, so they're not, I mean, I've got four-year-olds that are being supervised at home by their eight-year-old sibling because mom, single mom, is working two jobs. Both eight and four-year-old get beaten up by the bully on the street, get molested by some other teenager on the street, get molested by some 20-something-year-old on the street. We have to have a village around the eight and four-year-old so that we prevent all of that um, and then have fewer than 304 kids. I mean, it's the eight and four-year-old, when they are 12 and 14, will be acting out the justifiable anger they have at the abuse and the trauma will blow up in the school system. You see, you know, fights and, and issues that are coming up in school. Not all of that, but some of that has a trauma history to it. Um, and we need to we need to be able to, um, in the same model that Judge Matlock worked out for juvenile court, we have to be able to identify it, screen it, refer it, have a community to refer to. You have to have the professionals that can serve those kids. And then hopefully, really start to put a dent in that in that cycle so that we can see you know less crime in a healthier community so i'm down to two questions with you let's start with this one um and, and you actually you said this previously and today you said that when 14 year olds come to see you you're too late yeah that of the 66 repeat offenders we mentioned earlier you might turn around three oh that you're I was too late. pessimistic that day maybe, but okay. Yeah, yeah. I know that between Christy Gustafson and the Community Foundation's work with the parish and the recent passage of the city's Shreveport Early Start Initiative, that there is great work happening in the community around early childhood education for our zero to five-year-olds. 
what do we need to do, and you've talked a lot about this, but what do we need to do for our 6 to 13-year-olds to help reduce juvenile crime in the future? I mean, I think trying to draw in the points you made there, um, Christy Gustafson and the work at the Community Foundation, Laura Alderman, um, Carla Burgos, what they've done um, around early childhood education is the model of what has to be done kind of for every age group. You know, find out, for example, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of kids are not kindergarten ready when they're showing up to kindergarten in the county school system. There are certain elementary schools, 80 to 90% of the kindergarten class are not kindergarten ready when they show up. Um, to then ask the school system to try to get them first grade ready, third grade ready, sixth grade ready, pass leap tests, all those things, <clears throat> it's almost an impossible task when they're starting two years behind. I can't win a three-mile race if I start two miles behind the starting line. <clears throat> um, so the model they have get a tremendous amount of the community together. I and mean, I think we had a summit on early childhood that had something like 70 people. Um, and it's a lot of different la layers of leadership. I mean, the, um, the hospital system leadership, law enforcement leadership, the, the, certainly the school system leadership, um, business community. But getting them all together to recognize that problem, to focus on it, um, they raised a million dollars to get a million dollar match from the state. So there's now two million dollars sitting in a bank ready to help assist uh, um, families in poverty that need early childhood education. That's a great model. That's a public health model for how we want to try to address that problem. Um, we need to do similar things um, a 6 to 13 year old. Um, SPAR and the city have fantastic facilities and staff. Um, Caddo Parks, fantastic facilities and staff. Um, the school system, there's, there's an entire community around, you know, sports, recreation, arts, dance, music, everything in the community. Um, that's the intervention programs that we need to wrap around the 6 to 13 year olds. Um, everything, I mean, we've kind of already talked about it. Um, for kids that are in poverty, that don't have a household um, that's functioning to help with reading and help with edu early education. Um, so now, first, second, third grade. Um, if, if mom is struggling, mom was working two jobs, or mom herself um, didn't get a great education, dropped out young, you know, dropped out early, whatever it is, um, if we work together and the school system identifies, we know who the kids are, we know where the, what's going on, you know, can we work with a SPAR facility or a Caddo Park, we're talking about the after school hours, we have dozens of after-school programs. Um, most of them do cost some kind of money, and that's part of the problem is that these families don't have that money. Um, most of them take some level of uh, transportation by the family, and again, they don't have that. Um, what we've done in the past, I think, causes us trouble. Community members that I will hear say, it's the parents' fault, starts in the home, parents aren't doing what they're supposed to do, and we can kind of you know, shake our finger at the parents all day long. 
that may be entirely true. That may be 100% right. It doesn't solve the problem. And the 6 to 13-year-old, it's not going to solve the problem. And that problem is going to be a 14-year-old very soon coming to juvenile detention. You can get arrested at 10 in Louisiana. So we have 11 and 12-year-olds involved in crime, unfortunately. Few, mostly 13, 14. But um, that kind of problem can come all too quickly. And so we definitely need to get in front of it. If we say as a community, you know, it's, it's the mom's fault, she needs to provide this, she needs to provide the transportation, she needs to teach the lessons, she needs to help with the reading, I mean, just being frank, it's not going to happen. It's just not. And so in order to deal, it's part of the cycle of it. We have to intervene, Get reach out to the 6 to 13-year-old, get them to a smaller facility where there is a reading program. And again, I mean, I, I think I mentioned in terms of the churches, I don't even know exactly how many small facilities, 14, 16, they're, they're, they're good facilities and they're right where they need to be. And we have over 400 churches. What if we connected, you know, six churches to every small facility so that it, it, all of the issues of transportation, of money, does the kid have enough food, they need help with reading, they need help with homework, everything that kid needs, can we as a community fill that need to try to stop the cycle? Because the six to 13 year old, if we don't, can all kind of acknowledge, and I'm not blaming them on, it hadn't worked, it's not going to happen. Can we intervene with the 16 to 13 year old, 6 to 13 year old, so that they become a parent not at 14, but at 23, when they have a vocational certificate, when they have whatever they need, when they're college graduate, I mean, they can be whatever they want to be if we can help them. Um, but can we intervene with those kids so that we stop the cycle? And that's, that's basically the model. When you talk to Danville, Virginia, when you go to Chicago, all of the successful programs, it's about stopping that cycle. We can, we can point fingers at the parents and what's failing until the cows come home. It, it's not gonna, it, doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem. We've got to intervene for the 6 to 13-year-old. Christy Gustafson and, and, and all the folks that are working with her, John Dean, I mean, all those folks, they are, they've got a great model, and I think we really do have a system right now for early childhood. The school system is definitely working on that part, too, um, trying to add, um, you know, zero to five um, in more formal education. Um, as a community, if we really want to reduce crime, we have to create that after-school recreational system to help the 16 to 13-year-olds. Um, it is wildly political. I mean, you know, you'll have a fair number of folks that feel like that's, you know, entitlement programs to help um, families that don't have, you know, I get the idea that there is a, a part of me that is frustrated by my, not my taxpayer dollars that might have to create a a sports program for this kid when I pay legitimate money to Cabosa for my kids to go play soccer. Um, I get the idea. Again, that kind of finger pointing won't solve crime, won't fix the problem, and the 6 to 13 year old will not have a village built around them because it's not going to happen. They don't have the money. They don't have the money because you're talking about generational poverty and cycles of poverty and it's not going to happen. Um, I would rather have my taxpayer money help that kid that's 6 to 13 because it'll cost less when he's 6 to 13 because I will be paying when he's 22 in prison at best, 
22 on welfare at best. I mean, it's I, we are paying now as taxpayers for it. I'd rather pay less. And also, there's one more component to that. Um, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of entitlement programs to the extent that I think they it it's a it's a breakdown kind of to the human spirit to not build something yourself, but to rather be have it you know given to you. I don't, I don't like the idea. It's not an entitlement program for the six-year-old. It might be an entitlement program to the single mom if I pay for that kid's sports program. The kid still has to earn it. The kid still has to sweat. He still has to run. He still has to practice. He still has to learn the lessons of, of losing with grace and winning with grace. And he has to, the kid, it's not an entitlement program. If we as a community give that eight-year-old a, a free ticket to Cabosa or Pop Warner or, or dance or art or whatever it is, um, so somewhere there is a solution in there between SPAR, Caddo Parks, the school system, the recreation program, and our, I mean, frankly, the why. I mean, our, our recreational community, the private recreational community, there is a solution for these kids in poverty where we can build that village around them. They can learn those lessons that sports taught my kids. Um, and those, and they need those lessons, because by the time they come to me at 14, if they don't have those lessons, they're learning values from a gang member, and and we have what we have now. We have gang membership and 13-year-old shooting at people. So, um, anyway, it's complicated. I get that part with the taxes and everything, but we've got to do it as a community. We've got to come together and do that. And so lastly, uh, this wasn't a question I wrote, but I should have. Um, so for people out there who are listening, just the lay person who says, I love my community. I'm, 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 I've had enough of the crime. I, 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 I'm convinced I need, to, I need to do my part. What do you have to say to those people, or what can they do, or how can they get involved and in, 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 in play as small of a role as it may be in helping this in, in the future? That's a great question. I mean, I think that is complicated. Um, I think that government can't fix this problem. Government can't raise kids. But the community of mentors and program, you know, sports and dance and art, that community can. Government has to set the stage for it, though. And so can the, and we're doing this now, we're beginning this now, um, Parish Commission, and I've talked about the two members, you've got the City Council, you've got the Mayor's Office, you've got um, the School Board, all of our law enforcement, the DA, the Sheriff, the Chief of Police. Um, if we can come together and um, you know, try to create some of those programs um, in a, as much as possible. Um, I think we've got this now without additional taxes. I think we have SPAR, Caddo Park, schools. I think we've got a lot of this that we can do without raising money. Um, that's one of the questions though. We do have to address the funding. Do we need money? Hopefully we can do it without any additional money. Um, I think it's more of the collaboration. We have to come together and do that. The citizen, average citizen, can, I mean, I think in two ways. Number one, frankly, um, support uh, government in doing that. 
So, you know, however you want to phrase this, you know, either demand of your leadership that we collaborate and do this, um, or for those that they see doing it, encourage them, support them. Um, you know, if you see Stormy Gage Watts, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pick on her a little bit because she's a friend and I think an amazing person. Um, you know, if you see her in the community and you know that she's a part of this solution, encourage her in the collaboration and in this effort. Um, Jim Talaferro, I mean, he's been a friend of, of 20 plus years. Our kids grew up together. If you see him in the community, you know, encourage him in those efforts. Um, I think that's part of it. The leadership has to know um, the community wants this. Um, and then I think there will be a role for the community. Um, what we're trying to line up right now, and this is all kind of, again, just under in, in, in the works. Um, what I'm hoping to set up is going to be around, it's, part of it's going to be in and through churches, um, volunteer opportunities for churches to help, um, and then individuals. Um, there's everything from, you know, do you have the time in your, if you're a retiree, in your schedule, the school system has a program where, where folks come in, of course they're vetted and there's all sorts of, but you do all that and then you read to third graders and you're helping third graders in reading and, and, and reading, I mean, I'm sure everybody's heard, it's a kind of a terrible notion, but they're building federal prisons based on reading levels in elementary school. If you can't read by a certain age, there's a, there's a percentage chance you're going to end up in a, I mean, that, that's the terrible kind of um, correlation between the failure to read and, and criminality. So um, we need more reading programs like that. There's going to be opportunities for people to volunteer like that. Um, the SPAR facilities, you know, if we can hopefully get some organization um, where we're mixing um, SPAR and the Caddo Parks and things where we can collaborate together and, and can volunteers, again, vetted, um, do what we need to do, but, but to have um, opportunities for kids for homework help, for reading, um, for sports recreation, piano, dance, whatever it is. Um, some of it um, may be um, money. Um, if an eight-year-old you know, can't afford any of this, and single mom can't afford any of this, um, there are ways to help, you know, vocational track for mom to try to stabilize the home. Um, and the kid needs, you know, whatever he says he's interested in or she says she's interested in. If it's piano, um, do we as a parish, as a city, do we subsidize um, piano lessons for this kid? I don't want to hire piano teachers. I don't need the employees and pension and all the, you know, but there are piano lesson, there are piano teachers in the community. Um, could we subsidize a child in poverty to go to that piano lesson? That's the one thing that he, you know, loves and is, and is focused on. Um, my son wakes up and kind of lives and breathes, depending on the season, golf and soccer. Um, lives and breathes. If I want to try to motivate him to do the right thing, it is a very easy lever to pull your soccer and your golf, you know, finish your homework, do what you need to do. Um, we need that same thing with these kids. If, if, if his one thing is piano and we can offer piano, it not only gives him that safe space, it gives him that mentor, it is then a lever for his behavior in the future, you know, how we raise kids. Um, and so the community 
has to find its generosity that we may end up with a government you know funding system where the kids piano lessons are subsidized um, you know, there's a lot of talk in the community right now about are we, are we paying off college loans and whatever else I don't even want to get into the politics of it I got an eight-year-old who loves piano and can't afford it. I just want to figure out a way to get him into a piano lesson so that when he's 15, he's not in the gang and I got to deal with him then. However we solve that problem, the community has to come together to solve that. That's what, that's what they have to do. So, you know, um, staying aware of all of this, keeping up with your, with the leadership in the city, but um, whoever the mayor is, whoever's on the city council, whoever's on the school board, um, we need to continue these efforts. Um, if the community can support people, the, the leadership doing these things, um, support if it is subsidizing some of these poor kids getting what they need. Um, and then, you know, the volunteerism. I do think we have to create a structure where, um, where it's organized. I don't want it to be, you know, this haphazard of people kind of volunteer. You know, if we can create a more structured, if you're interested in volunteering, call this number, the city, the parish, the school system, that we have something where we can kind of channel people. There are ample opportunities to, um, to, to do that. Um, you know, some of it, for example, what you all have done at the Y with swimming. You created a program, you see a, a tragedy, you create a program where you partner with the school system, and now you have an entire system. I don't know what enough people know about that, first of all, I think it's amazing. Um, that, to some extent, is the model. You literally take children who, for whatever reason, I'm not judging any, they don't know how to swim. I'm not judging the parents, they t should have taught them, they don't have the money to teach them, the cycle of poverty, whatever's going on that they don't know how to swim, I don't care. Teach them to swim so they don't drown, period. What do we do as a community to get them here, to bust them here, to subsidize so that they get this and we avoid that tragedy in the future? That's a microcosm of literally what we're talking about. We've got kids in the community who are going to drown by way of gun violence or gang violence or poverty or welfare needs, whatever it is, and it's going to cost all of us more in the future to deal with it. Um, and I want to try to set up a system to save them from from that drowning, from that violence, from whatever that is. So that's the idea. Um, I'm hopeful, though. I mean, I think Shreveport, like I said, it, we are small enough to be able to come together to do it. We do all know each other. I think we can do it without pointing fingers and, and, and collaborate, but it is going to take everybody. So I'm hopeful. Well, I appreciate all you're doing. Um, you, you're in the trenches uh, in, in ways I can't even fathom, and um, we're all um, incredibly fortunate to have you. Um, and um, I fully champion and support the work you're doing, and um, I, I know that. so many people do. I appreciate that. I mean, I will say um, I don't do it by myself. There's 85 people that work at juvenile court that do tremendous work. Um, the staff in detention, the staff in probation, they do amazing work. Um, they put themselves at risk to try to help these kids turn their lives around. Um, I know Dr. Gorey and his team in the school system are doing amazing things um, that I see going on there, so I'm, I'm hopeful for that reason. Um, I, I, 
I mean, I think, like you said, if, if people will continue to be engaged and reach out, hopefully we can we can continue down this path of, of trying to turn things around. So try to remain hopeful. Um, sorry, I rambled a fair amount in here, but um, yeah, I do think anybody that's interested in in the work, um, any of the programming that I've talked about, I mean, find a way to reach out to me, juvenile court. It's pretty easy. Um, reach out to some of the commissioners or parish, you know, the city council or school board members. Um, to try to support the work, so we'll, we'll keep doing it. Appreciate Thanks, Clay. It. Appreciate it for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Yeah.